0: The Story of Psychology With your host, Professor Todd Based on the work of Dr. C. George Boray. Part 3 The 1800s The Romantic Philosophers Soren Kierkegaard Quote There are, as is known, insects that die in the moment of fertilization. So it is with all joy. Life's highest, most splendid moment of enjoyment is accompanied by death. Soren Kierkegaard was born in Copenhagen on May 5, 1813, the youngest of seven children. The Danish, I understand, also pronounce his last name as Kierkegaard. His father, Michael Peterson Kierkegaard, was in the hosiery business. He was a powerful man who held to a particularly gloomy Christianity, obsessed with guilt over having once cursed God. His mother was Annie Sørensdatter lund a servant of the Kierkegaards. Two of Soren's brothers and two of his sisters died. By 1834, his mother had died as well, and Kierkegaard became nearly as depressed as his father. He lost his faith and turned to a hedonistic lifestyle, but had a religious experience in 1838. He received his theology degree in 1840, and proposed to Regine Olsen, daughter of a prominent Copenhagen government official. No one knows precisely why, but in late 1841, he broke off the engagement, which led to considerable negative social press. It seems to have been the pivotal crisis in his life, and he abruptly left to Berlin to study. When he returned, he finished a manuscript that he had been working on and, in 1843, published Either-Or. The book takes the form of an argument about how to live life between an aesthetic man and an ethical man, very probably reflecting the two aspects of Kierkegaard's own soul. The aesthetic man is basically a hedonist and an atheist. Although he's portrayed as a refined gentleman, his sections of the book are rambling, suggesting that his life is likewise without focus. The ethical man is a judge, and his arguments are far more orderly and eloquent. He spends considerable time analyzing the ancient Roman emperor Nero and his mental states. Also in 1843, Kierkegaard published the famous book Fear and Trembling, which retells the story of Abraham and his near sacrifice of his son Isaac. This time, Kierkegaard compares the ethical response it is clearly wrong to kill one's own son, with a religious response, which is reflected in Abraham's faith in his God. In his various books, Kierkegaard develops his three stages, or competing life philosophies. The aesthetic person, who lives in the moment and lacks commitment. The ethical person, who is in fact committed to his ideals. And the religious person, who recognizes the transcendent nature of true ideals. Hopefully, you will notice the similarities between Kierkegaard and Schopenhauer. Although, for Schopenhauer, the aesthetic refers to a love of art and music, not a simple hedonism. Throughout his work, Kierkegaard was concerned with passions. He defined anxiety, for example, as, quote, the dizziness of freedom, end quote. Despair is what the hedonist feels when he finally recognizes the emptiness of his life. Guilt is what the ethical man feels when he inevitably discovers his inability to forgive himself. These definitions would profoundly influence a number of later philosophers, writers, and Christian thinkers. In 1849, Kierkegaard published Sickness Unto Death, which was his strongest call to the conventional Christians of Copenhagen to take what Kierkegaard called a leap of faith into a more personal kind of religion. But his community was not quite ready for this passionate brand of Christianity, and Kierkegaard was severely criticized by the religious powers of Denmark. Kierkegaard is often considered the first existentialist, mostly because of the way he used the word existence. He said that God doesn't exist because God is eternal. Only people exist because they are always an unfinished product. And the nature of existence is, first, that it is the domain of the individual. And second, that individual must take responsibility for his or her own creation. But Kierkegaard noted that this was not a system Of philosophy. Human existence is an ongoing process of creation and cannot be encompassed by any system. This has been a central theme in existentialism ever since. Kierkegaard died on October 2, 1855, of spinal paralysis. He would not take communion and he asked that no clergy participate in his funeral. His epitaph reads, the individual. Nietzsche I fear that animals regard man as a creature of their own kind, which has, in a highly dangerous fashion, lost its healthy animal reason. As the mad animal. As the laughing animal. As the weeping animal, as the unhappy animal. Second only to Rousseau in the impact he had on psychology is Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche. He was born in Rocken in Prussia Saxony on October 15, 1844, and named after Friedrich Wilhelm IV, King of Prussia, who had the same birthday. Nietzsche's father was a minister one of many in his family, who had tutored several members of the royal family. His mother was a puritanical housewife. When Friedrich Nietzsche was 18, he lost his religious faith, and this would remain a central issue for the rest of his life. And he said his life was changed as well by his reading of Schopenhauer a few years later, while a student at the University of Leipzig. When he was twenty-three, Nietzsche was drafted into the Prussian army, but he fell off of a horse, hurt his chest, and was released from further military service. He received an appointment as a professor of philology, the classical languages and literature, at the University of Basel, at the tender age of twenty-four, a year before he received his Ph.D. Near Basel lived the famous Richard Wagner and Nietzsche was invited to Christmas dinner in 1869. Wagner's grandiose and romantic operas were to influence Nietzsche's view of life for some time to come. He served a brief stint as a volunteer medical orderly during the Franco-Prussian War, during which he contracted diphtheria and dysentery, which damaged his health permanently. After returning to Basel, He published his first book in 1872, inspired by Wagner, and called The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music. It was in this book that he introduced the contrast of the Dionysian and Apollonian. Dionysus was the god of wine and revelry, living for the moment. Apollo was the god of peace, order, and art. The one lacks discipline, but the other lacks, as we might say today, soul. In 1879, because of his seriously deteriorating health, he was forced to retire from teaching. He published Human All Too Human, An Analysis of Emotion. This was published in parts from 1878 through 1880. During this time, he also fell in love with, although briefly, the famous Lou Salome, later to be a confidant of Sigmund Freud's. Heartbroken, and perhaps recognizing that he was destined for bachelorhood, Nietzsche retired high into the Alps to write his masterwork, Thus Spake Zarathustra, published in 1883 through 1885. Here, he made a heroic effort at addressing the pessimism of Schopenhauer. Nietzsche felt that religion had failed miserably to provide man with meaning, so that now God was dead. Human beings needed to stop looking to the skies and start providing that missing meaning ourselves. The people that Nietzsche saw as having accomplished this transition, he called the Übermenschen, which is usually translated as the Supermen, but Nietzsche notes the Ubermensch the Supermen have not arrived as yet, and we must be satisfied to serve as a bridge to that future. The book thus spake Zarathustra is a masterpiece by any standard, yet Nietzsche remained an unknown, his health continuing to deteriorate. He was cared for by his sister, Lisbeth. She, however, married an anti-Semite, who Nietzsche abhorred, and so he moved to a commune in Paraguay. Nietzsche then lived in various rooming houses all over Italy and Switzerland. His eyesight went from bad to worse, and his headaches overwhelmed him. He stopped writing books altogether, and instead, wrote aphorisms, short comments, which he then collected into books. Beyond Good and Evil, the best introduction to his ideas came out in 1886, and The Genealogy of Morals in 1887. In these books, he makes clear his distinction between the Herrenmoral and the Moral, that is, the morality of the lords and the morality of the herd. The morality of the herd is what he calls traditional Judeo Christian morality. It is, he says, an ethic of helplessness and fear. With this morality, we keep the powerful and talented under control by appealing to virtues such as altruism and egalitarianism. Secretly, it is like all motives, a will to power, but a sly and manipulative will to power. We cry, I am weaker than you, but I am still better than you. The morality of the lords, on the other hand, is based on the manly virtues of courage, honor, power, and the love of danger. It is pagan, western, Teutonic. The only rule, he said, is do not betray a friend. Although Nietzsche himself was not anti-Semitic, his choice of words would lead the Nazis to use some of them in ways that he never intended for many years after his death. Ask yourself if masses of people shouting Heil Hitler and the act of rounding up minority civilians for work camps and slaughter in any way make you think of courage and honor. The contrast between these two moralities, the herden morality and herren morality, the morality of the herd or the morality of the lords, what has sometimes been called slave morality and master morality, the contrast is a productive one. Nietzsche says that while the herd morality, the slave morality, is bourgeois, that the master mentality is aristocracy. Herd morality, democracy. The Lord mentality, laissez-faire. Slave mentality is welfare, socialism, egalitarian. But master morality is based on merit, freedom, and honesty. Herd morality, human rights. Master morality is purpose. Herd morality includes sympathy, comfort, and decadence. While these signs of mental weakness are not allowed for the ruling class. Now, Nietzsche became increasingly ill and bitter, blind and paranoid. In Turin, in January of 1889, he had attempted to protect a horse that was being whipped when he suffered an apoplectic stroke, just like Rousseau before him. And this stroke sent him to an asylum. Some people believe his collapse was the result of syphilis, but it could just as well have been due to his years of medication. His mother claimed him and took care of him until she died in 1897, when his sister, now back in Germany, took him in. He was seldom lucid after that. He died August 25, 1900, at the age of 55, of stroke and pneumonia. A number of his works were published after his collapse, including The Will to Power in 1889, which is a collection of aphorisms found in his notebooks, and his autobiography, Ecce Homo, in 1908. *Eke Homo illustrates both his brilliance and his insanity very dramatically. Sigmund Freud called Friedrich Nietzsche the most brilliant psychologist who ever lived. Romanticism in general. Beneath all of the variety represented by the Romantics lies a common theme, passion. While the empiricists were concerned with sensory data, and the rationalists were concerned with reason, the Romantics looked at consciousness and saw first and foremost its dynamics, purposefulness, striving, desire, and passion. In the book Faust, Goethe has Dr. Faust say, Gefilte es alles, feeling is everything. In fact, the Romantic philosophers saw passion in all of life as a basic category. Life as a Darwinian struggle, not just to survive, but to overcome. As such, it could be called instinct. But in humanity, it goes further and involves an overcoming of nature itself. Quote, the only reality is this, the will of every center of power to become stronger, not self-preservation, but the desire to appropriate, to become master, to become more, to become stronger. Quote. Friedrich Nietzsche. Along with their love of passion came an impatience with even a disgust at the mediocre, the weak, the irresponsible, the unpassionate. The Romantics' view of the world is a reflection of their view of humanity. The world is rich, full of qualities, color, sound, flavor, feeling. Thick, you might say, and not the thin, gray, empty thing as pictured by modern science. They tended to ignore metaphysical speculation as an intellectual game. And for Schopenhauer, passion became the basic form of all reality a universe pressing to be realized. A passionate metaphysics requires a passionate epistemology, as opposed to an intellectual or empirical epistemology. First, this passionate epistemology has a preference for intuition or insight. As Pascal put it, quote, the heart has reasons that reason knows nothing of. A holistic understanding is more satisfying than logical, analytical, or experimental explanations. The world is too big for those and has to be embraced rather than picked apart. And the importance of the subjective is emphasized. All experience is subjective as well as objective. This is sort of an uncertainty principle that applies to all sciences. And philosophy, and certainly to psychology. Pure objectivity is impossible, or at best, a questionable goal. So subjectivity is not something that should be eliminated, but rather understood. Hence, we must go back to life as it is lived, the Leibensfeld. We must study whole, meaningful experiences. We might want to go back to ordinary people, perhaps children or primitives, to understand the lived world before it is tainted by our perpetual intellectualizations. These tendencies would eventually lead to phenomenology and related methodologies. Last, and far from least, we must have a passionate morality. The romantics tend to admire the heroic, taking a stand against nature, against the mediocre, against nothingness or meaninglessness. To some extent, the heroic is tied to futility. It is Don Quixote tilting against the windmills that he sees as giants. There is, in romantic philosophy, an affection for the foolish or the unconventional. Romantic morality is more stoic than Epicurean. Meaning, as expressed by virtue, purpose, and courage, is the highest value, not pleasure or happiness as we usually conceive of them. A passionate morality requires freedom, which Goethe considered the greatest happiness, and which was quickly disappearing from empiricist rationalist, and even religious philosophy. I have to be free to take that courageous stand. To have my life determined for me is to be nothing at all." Nietzsche speaks of amor fati, a love of fate. When choices are taken from us, we can still conquer in the moment with our attitude. Nietzsche once said, God is dead. Now anything goes. You don't have to do anything. Be nice? Why? Be selfish? Why? As Sartre put it, we are condemned to freedom. Even when we choose to allow ourselves to be determined, it is our choice. Even Kierkegaard asks us to take a leap of faith that has no justification. So we have nothing to lean on, no crutch, no opiate, no excuses. Freedom means responsibility. We create ourselves, or better, we overcome ourselves, or at least we should. Freedom requires that we be truly aware, fully conscious. It requires that we be fully feeling, and that we not deny, but experience our passion. It requires that we be active and involved. Freedom means creativity, and the romantic prefers the artist over the scientist. These ideas are the foundation for the concept of self-actualization. The heirs of the romantic are the phenomenologists, the existentialists, and the humanists of today.